like there's my wife is the only one like yeah. shouldn't be surprised and in fact I'm not I think I would have been more surprised if anybody else would have raised their hand um, but I wanted to start off with uh, an opera uh, opera illustration that's why I thought so maybe only one other person will understand what I'm talking about in the mid 1930s would anybody recognize the name George Gershwin he's not necessarily considered an opera writer but he did write an opera in the mid-1930s, uh, he wrote an opera called Porgy and Bess. Is anybody familiar with Porgy and Bess? Would you raise your hand? Oh, a few more hands. There we go. All right. See, you didn't even know that you liked the opera, and, or at least maybe you didn't like Porgy and Bess. I don't know. But if you don't know the opera, you might be familiar with the, some of the songs that are within the opera. Is anybody familiar with the song Summertime? Anybody? Summertime, the living is easy. Fish are jumping, the cotton is high. Your daddy's rich and your ma's good looking, so hush, little baby, don't you cry. Summertime. Always think about that with a glass of iced tea or lemonade and sit back on the, on the chair on the porch and relax. Another popular song in the opera is called It Ain't Necessarily So. Anybody ever heard that song before? A few of you, oh, more of you did than I, than I thought. It Ain't Necessarily So. It's sung by one of the villains in the, uh, in the story. And he is trying to cast doubt into the minds of some of the other characters, specifically regarding the reliability of the Bible. And though the song is anything but truthful, its tune and just that little phrase, it ain't necessarily so, uh, caught on. And it became uh, pretty popular to use uh, when you were challenging a certain way of thinking or maybe uh, some supposed truth that was uh, that was being uh, challenged, they would use that statement. So during World War II, in the country of Denmark, when uh, the Germans occupied Denmark, they would have nightly broadcasts on the radio, their propaganda broadcasts, uh, that were boast of the German victories and these embarrassing Allied defeats. But at the end of each broadcast, a local resistance station would kind of patch in and cut in right at the conclusion of the broadcast with the opening bars of It Ain't Necessarily So. And they were trying to get the people to understand that just because you heard it on the radio, it ain't necessarily so. And just because the Germans said it's going one way, the truth is actually something quite different. And in the passage before us, Matthew concludes his section of the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus with two final episodes. They kind of highlight the hardness of heart of the Pharisees and the scribes, reveals their hypocrisy and ultimate judgment that is coming. And as we listen to the conversations of, uh, between the Pharisees and Jesus, we notice that Jesus points out two different types of people in these, in these stories here. And and these two different types of people look good on the outside. They all say the right things, they do the right things, and they even appear to, uh, to, to be right with God. But, though they seem to be believers, if we can borrow Gershwin's phrase, it ain't necessarily so. Now, I want to point out these two people, or these two types of people in the passage this morning, because... Though the names and faces have changed over the years, we still see these people today. We see them at work, when we go to the grocery store, at the backyard barbecue. In fact, 
They may be sitting in here today. Even more so, they might be me. It might be you. And I see this in this passage, these two types of people that look and act and talk like a Christian, but they really aren't. These are people that seem to be saved, and they make us and themselves think that they are saved, but they really aren't. So I want to invite you to take a look at these people, hear what Jesus has to say about them, and then inspect your own life, inspect all of us to inspect our own lives and see how we match up to these two groups of people. Because even if a person does all the right activities, you're here in church this morning, it's a good activity, but even if you do all the right activities, you go to all the right places, you say all the right things, it does not mean a person is a Christian. They're not necessarily Saved. Had to fix the grammar there on the title. I couldn't, couldn't uh, go with ain't too much. And the first type of person, if you're looking at your, at your Bible there, the first type of person is the religious person. These are the Pharisees that are described in verses 38 to 42. They look very religious. And if you've been uh, paying attention the last several weeks, uh, we've seen a documented history of rejection after rejection after rejection and, and just coming from different angles, but the theme is the same ever since, really ever since chapter 11 began, was rejection. And he finishes, Matthew finishes documenting it for us, in the, at least in this instance, at the end of chapter 12. These guys look very religious, and they probably really are. But there's a fundamental problem. They're trusting in their religion. And this becomes apparent when they're confronted by Jesus. Because when it comes down to it, for all the religious pomp and circumstance, for all the rules, for all the religious uh, appearance, when they're confronted by Jesus, they reject Him. Verse 38 there begins, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, as we've seen numerous times already in, in just reading the Bible before and even in our studies in Matthew, uh, we, we can assume, or not assume, but we know it's been proven already that these Pharisees do not believe in Jesus. They, they do not think that He is the Messiah. They, do, they resent the fact that He even claims to have uh, even some, some amount of authority, and later on they'll, they'll uh, be instrumental in leading to His death because He'll claim to be the Son of God. They've rejected him. They're planning to destroy him. They are trying to find ways to expose him as a fraud and do everything in their power to end his ministry. So now they come to Jesus asking him for a sign. And this is a rather sarcastic way to call Jesus teacher and a hypocritical way to call him teacher. They didn't mean it because they didn't believe that Jesus was a teacher. He didn't, they didn't think that he was qualified to be the teacher. He was not their teacher, neither was he their equal. See, the scribes were the experts in the law. These were the guys that you, you went to when you had a question. They would have been the Google of their day. You want to know a question about the law? You go see a scribe. He will tell you, and what he says, you don't question it. You don't doubt it. If you're disagreeing with a scribe, you always take the scribe's a point of view because they know better. They've studied this longer. This is their job to know. 
And so by coming to Jesus and calling Him teacher, they're not saying, would you teach us something? Would you, we respect you. Uh, we, we admire you. No, they're, be, they're being very sarcastic here and very hypocritical and coming in mock respect to Jesus, asking Him for a sign. But think about this. They've already been given numerous signs. Why do they need yet another sign? They've seen many miracles performed by Jesus and witnessed many evidences that He is the Messiah, but they didn't believe. All their, their hearts had been hardened. And even as we saw last week, they reinterpreted some of the signs that they had seen as satanic. Just in case it's not obvious that this is what they're doing, uh, if you read Mark and Luke's account of these, uh, of these uh, uh, events, uh, we, they remind us that they were asking Him for a sign in order to test Him. Matthew doesn't include that little phrase, but it is rather obvious from the context that they are trying to get Jesus to fail. They want Him to be proven as a fraud and a liar. But look down if, if in verse 39 at how Jesus responds. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So the Pharisees are asking for a sign, not just a miracle, and this sign was supposed to prove who Jesus really was. And Jesus' was response that they would receive the sign of the prophet Jonah, but nothing else. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Uh, Jonah, of course, was called to, uh, by God. He was called to go and preach to the, the city of Nineveh, uh, back in the, the book that has his, uh, his name as the title. Uh, and we know the story. He initially refused, and he ran away. I got on a boat and went in the opposite direction. God brings a big storm, and the story, uh, that, at least that little scene, ends with Jonah being thrown overboard in the middle of the storm, swallowed up by a great fish. Jonah 1.17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so Jesus refers to that when he says in Matthew 12.40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here Jesus is referring to his coming death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead three days later. This would be the ultimate sign that Jesus really is who he claims to be. Jesus really is the Messiah. But because the people of this generation of Israel do not believe, Jesus says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So when Jonah came to Nineveh, if you're familiar with the story, uh, you know the people believed his message. Uh, he, he came in and said, uh, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. There was no promise of, if you repent, you will be forgiven, there will be mercy. It was 40 days and you will be destroyed. And they said, well, we better do something about this, and they repented. But Israel, on the other hand, uh, had a very different set of circumstances. They were more favorable than in, in Nineveh. They were privileged to have God's Word for hundreds of years. Yet they didn't repent when Jesus came. Because of their heritage of knowing the one true God, they had so many more opportunities than Nineveh did to learn about the Messiah. But unlike the Gentiles of Nineveh, this generation of Jews had been given a more hopeful message than Jonah's. 
from a more perfect and compassionate prophet than Jonah and offered more convincing signs than Jonah. Yet they did not listen. They did not repent. Therefore, the generation of those who did repent at the preaching of a lesser prophet with lesser signs is going to rise up against them on judgment day and condemn the generation who wasted such opportunities and privileges as Israel did. And then notice he uses a second illustration here. This one is regarding the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba. If you want to look at it, it's in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles 9, and it talks about the story, but uh, Jesus uh, just kind of explains as much as we need to know. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, came up uh, to see King Solomon. She probably came from the African continent and we don't know a whole lot about her, but you can read about it in, in those two chapters there. Uh, and she came to meet King Solomon and see if all the stories that she had heard about the wisdom and might and power and wealth of Solomon and Israel were true. And in 1 Kings 10.6, she says to Solomon, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. So this woman came from the ends of the earth to meet Solomon and see for herself if he lived up to the hype. Though she didn't believe it at first, she did pack the suitcase, get on her camel, and make the trip to Israel to meet Solomon and find out firsthand before she just dismissed it as untrue. And when she got there, and tested him, and really honestly listened and, and thought about what was going on, her response is, the half has not been told. I mean, I thought I knew how much, how much wisdom you had been given, but your reputation isn't even up to what you actually are. This generation of Israel has someone among them who is greater than Solomon. And still they do not believe. Therefore, just as Nineveh will condemn them for not repenting, the queen of the south will rise up on judgment day and condemn them for not believing. They have someone who is infinitely greater than Solomon in their own country, yet they would not listen to him. They will not believe him. They will not turn to him and be saved. If you're remembering some of our previous studies, it would be uh, interesting and, and helpful to go back and to compare, I think, verse 6, when Jesus was talking about the temple. He says, one greater than the temple is here, uh, something greater than Solomon is here, something greater than Jonah is here, and we have a prophet, priest, and king uh, reference in just this, uh, this one chapter here. And we won't get into that, but that would uh, be some extra credit if you'd like that. So we see that the religion of these Pharisees hasn't really helped them. They're religious, very much so. But for all the religious ceremonies and rituals and rules, worship services, when it comes down to it, they still reject Jesus. They still don't repent. They still don't believe. So although they might seem okay, they're actually far from it. They might look like what we would call Christians. They're not. And we see the result of this Jesus-less religion in the second type of person. 
The second type of person is the reformed person. I just tried to stay with the R's to make it easier to understand. But a person who is reformed, as Kim mentioned in, in his explanation there, uh, of a person who's gone through a, a moral or, so, uh, or a personal reform, uh, his life has changed. This type of person whose life at one point is all kinds of a mess, but then has some good experience in his life that sets it in a new direction. He gets a new purpose in life. This is a man who suddenly gets his act together. This is a woman who finds some purpose in her life after wasting it and wandering aimlessly for some time. This person may or may not be a religious person, but they are a good person. We all know people like that. They don't go to church. They don't claim to be Christians, but they're good people. As far as the world's standard goes, they are nice they are friendly. They are helpful. Maybe they don't go to church or read the Bible, but they give to charity. They serve on the PTO. They coach Little League. They pick up trash in the neighborhood. They help the neighbor move his piano up to the third floor. They help shovel out little old ladies' driveways. They do a lot of good. Or maybe their life had just been such a wreck at one point that now simply holding down a job and keeping the family together and paying the bills on time is such an extreme swing from what they once were, we want to believe that something extravagant happened in their life. And something might have happened in their life. Probably did. But it might not be what you think. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." So here's a guy who is, who is plagued by an evil spirit. He's got a demon. And we've already read several examples in the Bible of people who are oppressed by demons, and we have a pretty good idea of what that must be like. And I, and I think it's safe to say that this man suffered in the same ways uh, to some extent or degree as these other examples in Scripture. But one day, the unclean spirit leaves him, and the man finds relief. He finds rest. And as it happens... The spirit can't find a new place to live. And so it decides to return to the man. And notice the Bible, Jesus is saying, the spirit refers to it as his house. Uh, So he's going to live inside this man. And so the the spirit returns to the man, and when it arrives, uh, it finds its old house empty, swept, and put in order. It's tidied up. But the spirit doesn't just move right back in. First it goes and finds seven other spirits, worse than it. And together they all enter the man and make his life worse than it was before. And so when we compare the before and the after, it seems that it would have been better for this man to never have had that good experience, to never have lost the first demon to begin with. Because now he's got eight, and and they're worse than the ones he had the first time. This is a man whose life has drastically improved. For a time, he's gotten his life cleaned up. His unclean spirit is gone. He's putting everything back in order. He's getting his life put back together. It's safe to say that this man has had a unique 
and special experience. And we don't want to take anything away from that experience. We're not saying that losing a demon is a bad thing. But that happy experience, at least for this man, doesn't last as the other demons return and make his life worse than ever. And Jesus uses this illustration to explain to us, so also will it be with this evil generation. This generation of Israel, like the man in the illustration, has experienced great things. Thousands of people in Jesus' day witnessed miracles. Many of them personally experienced them. Think about all the people that Jesus healed and fed. All the people who were blind that got their sight back. All the people who who were lame and now could walk. All the lepers who were cleansed. And even the dead who were raised back to life. I mean, how many? It must have been you were in the minority if you didn't experience something from Jesus and didn't witness something that happened. It seemed like a miracle was happening every other day in Jerusalem and around Palestine. But none of those good things matter if they reject Jesus. It doesn't matter that they received a miracle if they fail to trust the miracle worker. It wouldn't matter that they had a special experience if they rejected Jesus. It wouldn't matter if they found relief from their pain and suffering if in their healing they never found the Savior. All the people that Jesus raised back to, de- uh, back to life died again. People who were lepers that were cleansed still died. They were physical helps. They were, they were temporary fixes, if you will. And we don't want to minimize the fact that they got these things restored to them, but that's just temporary. It's not the main thing. You can't trust in an experience but you can trust in Jesus. We can't count on turning over a new leaf because that leaf can be turned over a hundred more times and leave you worse or at least right where you were before. We could call this the difference between trusting in a reformation rather than a transformation. Experience is not salvation. Reform is not regeneration. Sure, this man's life was changed for the better, but it was only temporary. And it led to something worse in the end. And if we could ask that man, now knowing what you know now, would you change that first good experience? Would you trade that back in so that you could lose the eight and only have the one that's not as bad? So I ask you this morning, are you this type of person? I'm not saying you're demon-possessed. But are you the type of person who's trusting in some unique experience that happened to you? Or are you trusting in Jesus? See, you might be a really good person by everybody's standard. I know almost all of you in here. I say, yeah, you're, you're pretty good. I mean, there's one or two of you that I've I wouldn't, uh, you know, put any money on it, but I, but I would, I would say that for the most of us, yeah, you're, you're a good person. And, and hopefully you have a reputation in the community and where you work and people would say, yeah, she's a good, she's a good woman or yeah, he's a good guy. And we could give lots of reasons why. But, but the real thing is this. What do you think about Jesus? 
See, this generation of Israel was as religious as they could be. The Pharisees in particular focused on lots of good things. They did the right things. They lived the right way. And everybody who knew them thought that if anyone was going to make it to heaven one day, it was going to be these guys. But when they were confronted by Jesus, their sinful hearts rejected Him. John MacArthur wrote this. He says, Man's basic sinfulness is not most fully revealed by what he does or says. Sin is most clearly and indisputably manifested by how a person responds to Jesus Christ. No matter what a person's outward life is like, his innate spiritual nature and his true attitude toward God are seen with absolute certainty in his attitude toward Jesus Christ. So, what do you do with Jesus? Not, do you love your family? Not, do you love your wife? Do you pay your bills on time? Do you go to church? Which church do you go to? How much do you give every year to charity? And, 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 and how many community and, uh, organizations are you involved? I'm not asking those things. What do you do with Jesus? See, there's a lot of people in our city right now, in our, in our county right now, in the world right now, who they might not be at church this morning. They might not ever go to church, but they are just as good just as moral as any one of us are. So what's the difference? They reject Jesus. Sometimes you can find a person who's just as sweet as they can be until you bring up the subject of Christ. And we find rejection. We find hard-heartedness. And sadly, it doesn't matter how many good things they've done. They reject Christ. None of it counts. So as Matthew draws near the end of his section, he's been, he's been pretty clear about the danger of those who reject Jesus. And in these verses that we've just read, we see that just because a, relig- a person is religious or has a happy, healthy experience doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved. But before Matthew concludes this section, he does remind us just exactly who is a Christian. Who necessarily is saved? We see the answer to that in verses 46 to the end of the chapter. Look there, please. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if the religious aren't necessarily saved, and if the morally and socially and religiously reformed aren't necessarily saved, then who is saved? The answer is simple. It is those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Told you I was sticking with ours. It's simply those and only those who have a relationship with Jesus. These are what we would call, the Bible word would be regenerate. They have been born again. They have been responsive to the truth about Jesus. They believe. They've repented. And as we see within these words, they are family. Jesus' mother and His brothers approach the house where He's teaching. And if you read Mark and Luke, you find some very interesting uh, add-ons to uh, what, uh, what uh, Matthew doesn't include for us. Apparently, this house is very full. 
And Mary and the, and the brothers uh, can't make it in to see Jesus, so they just send word to him, hey, your mom and, and your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. It's an interesting question as to why they wanted to see Jesus. If you read in Mark uh, chapter 3, that's Mark's account of this story, before he tells this part of the story, a few verses before, it says that they thought he was out of his mind. They, they didn't believe. And we can look in, in, in other parts of the New Testament and we can find out that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in who he was until after he rose from the dead. So Jesus lived in a family with people who should have known better than anybody else Man, Jesus never disobeys. Jesus never gets it wrong. But they didn't believe until after he was resurrected from the dead. Maybe the family was there to rescue Jesus from the Pharisees who planned to destroy him. Maybe they knew what was going on. Maybe the Bible does say in Mark 3 that the crowds were, ga- were gathering so much and so often that Jesus didn't even have time to eat. Maybe they were just there to give him some space and some time to try to you know, pull him away from all of that. Maybe... They thought he was a lunatic and they were bringing their brother home to keep him from further embarrassing the family. But regardless of the reason why they were there, and Matthew doesn't really give us any clues as to why they were there because it's not the point of why it's here. The point of why it's here is because Jesus takes this opportunity to show us, show the people there, but Matthew uses it to show us, the reader, something important about his true family. Because when the man tells Jesus that his family is waiting outside to speak with him, Jesus points towards the disciples and says, here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, these are the ones who are necessarily saved. They follow me. They do my Father's will just as I do. Now don't misunderstand this. He's not saying that these guys aren't religious. He's not saying that they don't do good things. It's just that they don't trust in religion. And they don't depend on their good works to please God. They don't count on some experience that happened to them. They have a relationship. It is true that those who follow Jesus will be somewhat religious, however you want to characterize that word. James has a very interesting and helpful explanation of what pure religion is. But the deciding factor of a truly regenerate Christian is not in an experience he had. It's not in a religion that he follows. But it is his own personal response to Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, we find ourselves not part of an experience, not not in a club that has membership dues and rules, We find ourselves in a family. This is the gospel call. It's not a call to morality. The gospel is not about cleaning up your life, being a good person now, stop being so naughty and bad. The gospel call is not a call to a religious experience. Hey, start coming to church. Take communion. Get baptized. Read the Bible. None of those things are what the gospel is all about. The gospel is for sinners to come and experience a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The gospel is about coming to Jesus. It's a call to the admission of your sinfulness. It's a call to the repentance of sin. 
It's a call to faith in Jesus. It's a call to follow Jesus. That's what he said there. Those who do the will of my Father, they're my family. They're my brother and sister and mother. He, he says, those people who do what I do are my family. And the truth of verse 50 is that no one who believes is excluded from the family. But at the same time, no one who does not believe is included. It's as simple as that. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done or haven't done. It doesn't matter if you have some really crazy story to tell. What have you done with Jesus? And time and time again through Matthew 11 and 12 and really throughout the whole Gospel, we find this question either right in the forefront or looming in the background, what do you do with Jesus? Israel as a whole rejected Him. There were those who received Him, obviously. Many of them did, but as a whole, they rejected Him. The Gospel was taken to the Gentile world. And again, some received it. Many rejected it. And on through the ages, the Gospel has been presented and, and spread throughout the world and presented to different people until it reaches our day. What have you done with Jesus? Ask yourself the question, what, what are you doing with Jesus right now? Is, why, why, if I say, okay, you're a Christian, you say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Do you look at some moment in time and you say, well, you know, I got this. I, I've asked so many people, I say, how do you know you're a Christian? They say, well, you know, one time I was in a really bad situation and I asked Jesus to save me and he did. And, and, and they meant save him from a car crash. They meant, well, you know, I, I started, I mean, you should have seen what I used to be like. I used to be a drunk. I used to, be a, I used to beat my kids. I used to, uh, you know, steal things from my work and all these different things. But now, I mean, I, I love my family. My family loves me. And we, we, go to, uh, we go to the park every Sunday afternoon and we do all these things. I mean, church is not really for me, but, but I'm a good person. And oftentimes I have a hard time disagreeing with them on that. Yeah, you seem like a good guy. What did you do with Jesus? Because the nation of Israel was a really good nation. Compared to all of the other nations in the world at that time, they were the best probably. But they rejected Jesus. So when you are confronted by the gospel truth, by the good news of Jesus Christ, what will you do? How will you respond to Jesus? And here's Here's the other side of it. If you have responded to Jesus, then you're in His family. That's a big deal. We'll talk about that. If you, if you come back tonight, if you look at the questions uh, for the evening discussion, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, this is, this is huge to be in the family. I'm in the family with God. Jesus is my brother. That's why sometimes you'll hear, if you're hanging around Christians, you'll hear them talk about our brother or our sister. There's, well, in Sherman, they might really be brothers and sisters, but in the family of God, in the church, we are family because we have the same Father, the Heavenly Father, who brought us into His family. He adopted us. We've been born again into this new family, and there is such special uh, significance in the fact that we are children of the Father. 
And if you've never believed that, I'm sorry, no matter how good you are, you're not in the family. But you can be. It's not that, well, there's an exclusive event that, that only, only a few people get to, get to get in. If you, whoever you are, turn to Christ and believe in Him and you trust in Him as your Savior, instead of your own self, instead of your own works, instead of religion or whatever it may be, and instead of saying, this is the, these are the rules, play by my rules, God, and let me in. Instead, you come and say, God, as we sang a minute ago, it's not in me. No list of sins that I have done. No, no, no list of virtues. No, no, no the religious expectations. No, no recitations of the truth that says, I've, nothing can justify the things that I've done wrong, but my righteousness is Jesus. My debt was paid by Jesus. He bore my load. He gives me rest. Why are you in the family? Because He brought me in. Not because I have an experience, not because I have a resume, but because I have a relationship. It's not about the changes that you're going to make. It's not about how religious you can be or how good you can become. Simply this. Will you receive Jesus or will you reject Him? And I pray this morning that if you would, each person, I don't care how long you've been coming here, search your heart and ask yourself that question. Do I receive Jesus or do I reject Him? Have I been doing the Christian thing with the wrong basis? Or have I come to Him? And I'm certainly not perfect. And I don't know that I'd even consider myself good or religious or whatever the case may be, but I recognize that I am a no good, I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. But I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And he is, he is my brother. And God is my Father. And that and that alone is why I think I'm a Christian. And then from there, He begins to do these things in us that everybody else is trying to do first. He makes you better. He makes you into the type of person that you know you should be. Maybe even the type of person that you think, I could never be. Maybe even the type of person you say, I don't really want to be. But now I'm, I'm a church person. I read the Bible. And pray. I confess my sins in front of other people. I sing songs that others might think are silly and foolish, but something, something changed in me when I started trusting Jesus. Would you pray with me, please?